All right, let me welcome everybody here tonight, those of you that are joining us in person, and I know that many, many of you are joining us online tonight. Uh, we are so excited for tonight. I spent the day with Mark. He was teaching and training our staff. We had one of the most remarkable sessions this morning. I think he's going to touch a little bit on it tonight that I think is going to be incredibly helpful for all of us in our faith and our understanding of our faith and of the of the Word of God that we follow as believers. Now, if you have any questions tonight, those of you that are joining us online, if you have any question at all tonight that comes up while he's speaking, go ahead and put it in the chat line. Those of you that are here in person, if you have a question, if you could email it to info at coastlinechurch.org, info at coastlinechurch.org. Dot org, and our team will be compiling all of the questions, and they're going to be texting them to me. And at the end of the session, or at the end of his lecture, I'm going to be interviewing him based on the questions that you send in to me tonight. There's a document that we printed that goes along with tonight, and it's the document that our staff had the privilege of studying with him today. And again, I'm telling you, it is excellent, excellent, excellent. So without any further ado... The reason we're all here tonight is uh, to learn from my dear friend. I've gotten to know him over the last year and appreciate him as a friend, but respect him as a you know, archaeologist, biblical historian, Old Testament scholar, the Indiana Jones. Of, I know he loves me when I say that, but the Indiana Jones of Christianity without a doubt. So let's turn him loose. And he's going to sit to lecture tonight, so make yourself comfortable. It's going to be a great night. Thanks, Aaron, and uh, again, welcome everyone, and thank you for having me. Really appreciate being here. Um, so you have this handout, um, but I'm not going to read it to you, okay? We're going to summarize it and basic, basically boil it down into three questions and five hacks that are going to instantly transform how you read the Bible. I think most of us, if we are honest, when we've gone to try and learn how to read the Bible, we have found it at some level confusing. And often we're told, well, just read the Bible more. That really doesn't solve the problem because we're fundamentally confused about what we're reading. I often say it's like telling someone with a broken leg, well, just run faster and you'll finish the race sooner. Okay? But one of the things that we need to say at the outset is that we need to become comfortable with realizing there's never a point in our Bible study where we cross the finish line and are done. That happens when we breathe our last. It's a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong process. I love studying the Bible because I find God and encounter Him in its pages. And so as you're getting ready here in Coastline to embark, already, you've actually already set off on the Life of Christ series, what I want to do tonight is talk a bit about how to study your Bible that is going to help begin the process of alleviating some of that confusion. 
So having said that, let's just say a few more things in terms of preliminaries, and then we'll dive right in. We need to understand that the Bible is the product of its time, its place, and its culture. That's why often it feels foreign to us when we read it. And we often approach the Bible by asking first the question, what does it mean to me? Can I suggest that's the last question we should ask? Okay, Because the Bible wasn't written to answer that question first. Because it belongs to its time, its place, and its culture. Also, the Bible being the product of its world meant something to its original audience. Which means that it's never going to mean something that it didn't mean. We don't get to use the Bible however we see fit. And let's be honest, in 2020, we saw people on all different sides of conversations. I don't know if we can actually say we have conversations in our world anymore. Um, anyway, but we saw people using the Bible repeatedly as a blunt instrument to beat people with. And the reality is we don't get to make the Bible say what we want it to say. The Bible meant something in its world. And if we are going to be good stewards and disciples of it, we need to understand what it meant. Having said that, because the Bible belongs to its world, its world is an Eastern world, not a Western world. This is very important. The East and the West approach things differently. In the West, we tend to be more linear in our thinking. We tend to define truth in more propositional statements and realities. In the East, they tend to think, discuss, in circles. They also tell and communicate their truth through story more than a philosophical treatise. At the same time, they tend to communicate in more concrete forms than abstract. Okay? That's all a long way of simply saying that within the Bible, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, a rock is just a rock. We don't need to try and over-spiritualize, over-analyze certain things in the Bible because it's going to communicate itself in very concrete ways. And we need to accept that. We don't need to try and unpack everything and say, well, this has to have some kind of spiritual meaning. I said this when talking with uh, the staff earlier today, the Bible is the most non-spiritual spiritual book ever written. Because if you think about it, a lot of the stories in the Bible are not dealing 
with spiritual matters. God is not even a primary character in a lot of the stories. I mean, then you get to the Song of Songs, and it's uh, an erotic love poem, right? So, but yet God is always the character in the background. And so by in interacting in these very real-world stories that we find in the Bible, think about it, it's different than the myths that we read in other cultures. Because often we're setting these stories in very real-world realities. We need to read it in very straight ways then and not try and over-hyper-analyze or hyper-spiritualize it. Okay? Remember, the Bible is never going to mean what it didn't mean. So how do we get at that? We're going to first of all start by defining three questions that should frame our way of reading the Bible. And you need to keep them in this order, and I'll explain why. Question number one, what was said? We are people of the story. We are not people of the text. What do I mean by that? We know the stories of the Bible, or at least how we've told the stories of the Bible, but we don't always know what the Bible itself says. Step number one, and this may seem hyper simple, but I'm not that smart of a guy, so I've got to keep it simple. Read the text carefully. We bring and import so much of our assumptions into our reading of the Bible. As much as you're able, when you go to read it, try and read it with new and fresh eyes. Kind of take what you think you know and set it over here. And read. I'll give you an example of this. On what day did God finish creating the world? Six days. Any other answers? All right. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, if you have them, or just make a note to go home and open them. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If you read that carefully, you'll realize that God actually finished his creation on the seventh day, not the sixth. Now, this is actually rather important because in John's gospel, when Jesus heals the lame man on the Sabbath, his entire argument for why he can do this and not be in violation of the Sabbath is because God himself worked on the Sabbath in creation. We have to read the text carefully. I'll give you another one. 1 Samuel 17 is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. David and Goliath, right? And normally we think of David, in fact, even in our own American cultural lexicon, right? We define David and Goliath as the underdog versus the champion, right? Every year, whenever we get to have March Madness, 
you know, round one, we want to see that number 16 knock off the number one. The David versus Goliath, right? And we even have this idea that David is this little boy, little shepherd boy. But if you read in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, it actually says David was a mighty man of valor. David wasn't a little boy. In fact, the word that is used of him is as a young man, a young pre-married man usually. Probably he's in his late teens, early 20s. Okay? Again, read the text carefully. And it's not just reading the verse that you're reading, but it's reading the larger context of the verse, the paragraph, the chapter, the book. But here's the thing. Don't start reading multiple books of the Bible in concert because understand that when the book of Jeremiah is written, it's not necessarily reading it in concert with all the other books of the Bible. Jeremiah has something to say. When you read the Gospel of Mark, Mark has something to say. And so make sure that when you read, read carefully and ask the question, what was said? Question number one. Question number two, what was meant by what was said? Okay? And we're going to unpack that one here in a, in a minute. And then the third question, what does it mean for us today? And I specifically use the plural us. Because one of the things that we find in the Bible is that spirituality is defined within community, not individual. And when we think about even trying to bring that world into our world, the first way we need to think about it is within our community of faith. What's God saying to us? Not just to me. Okay? So, what was said, what was meant by what was said, and what does it mean for us? Those are the three questions and we ask them in that order. Now, let's come back to that second question. Because here, I'm going to give you, to these three questions, five hacks that are going to get you to begin to answer what was meant by what was said. There are five contexts when we think about reading the Bible. Okay, Again, the Bible's the product of its world. And so for us to understand its words, we need to travel into its world. Makes sense, right? If I'm going to get to know any of you, I'm going to want to know when you grew up, where you grew up, your family, your job, your education, where you've lived. All of those things make up you. If I want to, for example, understand George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, I'm going to immerse myself in their world to understand their words, their thought, etc. Same thing's true in the Bible. The first context of the five is literary. 
Some of you hear that and you're like, oh no. I didn't want to go back to school. Don't make it more complicated than what it is. The Bible reflects different styles of literature. You don't read the comic strip the same way you do the front page of the newspaper. You don't read a poem the same way you read a novel. We know this. It's not really complex stuff. And when we come to the Bible, we have narrative, we have poetry, we have the Gospels, which are biographies, we have apocalypses, we have wisdom literature, and all of them function in a certain way. Now maybe the best way for me to illustrate this is when we used to be able to go to movies, okay? And if you're going to watch, let's say, a romantic comedy, you know more or less the genre that you're watching. You know what to expect. If you go to an action movie, you know what to expect. You're not going to have a love story at the heart of an action movie, right? The same thing is true when we approach the Bible. We have different genres, and we can't read them all the same. They're not all doing the same thing. So we need to understand, how do we read them within their world? Okay? Narrative is going to work one way. Let me give you an example. Book of Judges. Book of Judges is written to say, here's why Israel needs a king. And there's a cycle that runs through the book. Here's the cycle. And you can go back and read the book of Judges and you're going to see it over and over and over again. The people sin. God punishes them by raising up a foreign oppressor. That causes the people to cry out to God in repentance. God responds to their repentance by raising up a redeemer, a judge, and everything's awesome until that judge dies, and then we're back on the cycle again. And the author of Judges is saying, this is why we need a king, because when we leave ourselves to these charismatic judges, everything's fine until they die, and then we run ourselves off the rails again. Okay, That's the way he narratively structures these stories that include the story of Deborah and Barak, the stories of Ehud, the stories of Samson, and so forth. So even within those stories okay, that he structures, we don't get a lot of detail in Hebrew narrative. And when we do, you need to pay attention. Like what does the book of Judges say about Ehud? He's left-handed. When, he, when, the, when the author of Judges tells you something like that, you need to perk up and say, this is going to play a role in the story. And because he's left-handed, he's able to defeat Eglon, uh, the king of Moab, and you know, win the day. Right? When we read in the book, or in the book of Judges about the story of Samson, we always think about Samson as his fall being when he tells Delilah about his hair. But it's not. 
Samson's supposed to be a Nazarite. One of the cruelest realities, actually, I find this hilarious, is the fact that Samson is supposed to be a Nazarite, right? So a Nazarite can't do several things. What are they? Can't cut his hair, can't come in contact with a corpse, anything dead, and cannot touch the fruit of the vine, yet he grows up in what is called the Sorek Valley. And Sorek in Hebrew means it's vine country. He's growing up in like Napa Valley, and it's like, yeah, you can't touch any grapes. That's just like one of the cruelest ironies that, that, that exists there. But one of the things that we find that Samson does repeatedly is he breaks every one of those things. And in fact, if you read, he goes down to here. He goes down to here. He goes down. That language of going down is repetitive in his story until ultimately he finds himself bald. The author's telling you a story. He's not just trying to say, hey, yeah, you know, news story, big strong guy, kills a bunch of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. You know, highlights at five. That's not what he's doing. He's telling you something different. So again, you have to read the literature within its context. Make sense? Context number two. Spatial. The space of Scripture is as much a character in the Bible is Abraham and David or Peter and Paul. Had the stories of the Bible taken place in any other geography, they would have been different. That's how important the geography is. But the problem is, we are not familiar with the geography, but the authors of Scripture assume that we are. So they don't tell us a lot of those geographic details. Now you can say, well, you know, I don't know why they put in all these weird names because it's hard for me to pronounce. Fair enough. But it's more than just the sites or the bodies of water or the hills and the valleys. It's the flora. It's the fauna. It's the climate. It's the geology. All of those things become part of the metaphor and the telling of the story of the Bible. I'll give you a few examples here. Let's first talk about sites. We have a very famous story in Joshua chapter 10 where Joshua prays to have the sun stand still, right? We've heard of this one before. And most of us read that and say, well, Joshua, the sun setting, he wants more light so that it can extend his fighting day and so forth. But yet, when we read the prayer of Joshua, he says this, sun stands still over Gibeon, moon over Ayalon. We read that and go, okay, awesome. Let's move on, get to the good stuff. All right? But the purpose of the story is in his prayer. One of the things that I would suggest, never read your Bible without a map next to you. So whenever you find names of places, bodies of water, hills, you need to highlight those in your Bible. You need to get a highlighter that is just for the spatial context of the Bible. And you highlight 
those place names. So you should highlight Gibeon in that place and Ayalon. And then you go find them on a map. And you realize that Gibeon is in the east and Ayalon is in the west. What time of day is the sun in the east and the moon in the west? Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. That's exactly right. He's not asking, actually, for more daylight. He's asking for darkness. Because remember, he and his men have come, marched all night from down near Jericho, a place called Gilgal. And they come to Gibeon, and they arrive in the pre-dawn hours, and they launch this surprise attack against these five Canaanite kings. And then as he begins to pursue them, they're fleeing to the west. He prays that the sun will stay in the east because they're, they're, they're fleeing into the darkness. But notice what, something else that he's doing. By them fleeing to the west, when they try and turn as Joshua is pursuing him, now where does the sun sit? In their eyes. Any military folks here? Time of day ever matter when attacks get launched? Yeah, a little bit. It was true then too. All of that detail that I'm just describing for you is there. And the original readers of Joshua got it like that because they understood the geography of it. Give me another example. If you open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 1, around verse 11, God shows, and I remember when I, would, I used to read this, I thought this is one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard in my life. Um, how am I supposed to get any spiritual value out of this? And God shows Jeremiah an almond branch. He says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he says, I see an almond branch. And God goes, good job. I'm diligently watching over my word to accomplish it. Huh? But again, if we have our highlighter that is a spatial highlighter, what do we do? We highlight that because that is a part of the flora and the fauna of the land. Now, what's going on here is there's a wordplay, first of all, in Hebrew. Most commentators will pick up on this. So when you go to look at sources, they can tell you that. And in Hebrew, the word for almond is shaked. Okay? And the word to diligently watch is shoked. You hear the similarity, right? But that's not where it stops. To understand its role, we have to understand the horticulture of the almond. The almond is the first tree that blossoms in the spring. When the almond blossom comes out, you know that spring has arrived in the land of Israel but it's the last to fruit. Its fruit comes at the end of the summer. First to blossom, last to fruit. So what's, what's the point that's being stated here? God, by showing Jeremiah this, is saying, in the same way that when you see the almond blossom put forth its bud, you know that you're going to have to wait, but eventually the fruit will come so too I watch over my word, and even though it does not come now, it will eventually. Okay? Again, all of that is encapsulated in this spatial context. Now, let's move on to our next one. 
This one is historical. And what I'm going to recommend on these last four, that you find a different color highlighter for each one. And as you're reading, you just highlight those aspects. Because once you've highlighted them, then you, then you know where you go study. Oh, I need to read up on this site. Or I need to read up on this plant. It allows you to begin to deconstruct these verses. So even if you say, well, I don't understand this, that, or the other thing, that's fine. But now you've got a basis to begin to go and discover. Make sense? The third one, the third context is historical. The Bible represents history. It contains history. Now, it's not a history book, but it contains history. But what we need to understand is that it spans thousands of years in its stories. So between Abraham and David is a thousand years. Between David and Jesus is a thousand years. We cannot read the stories of David and the stories of Jesus parallel. Just like I can't read your story parallel with people that lived a thousand years ago. Right? I mean, one thing we've learned from the bard from Hibbing, Minnesota... The times, they are a-changing. Right? So here, it's true here. And we have to be sensitive to that. The Bible frames its story within the historical story of empires. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans. Kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, etc., you open your Bible to Luke chapter 3, and Luke frames the entire ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus by saying in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was the tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, when Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. The entire thing he frames historically and geographically. Now, if you don't know who Tiberius Caesar is, that's something you would highlight in that color. If you don't know who Pontius Pilate is, you would highlight that in that color. And immediately you should begin to ask yourself the question, why is a Roman Caesar important here? How did the Romans come into the land of Israel? If you don't know that, that's something that Luke and his original audience did know. And so that's something that we go off and we discover about. Those two contexts, spatial and historical, seem pretty straightforward. The next two are a bit more challenging. Because they intertwine a lot with our reading of the Bible. Let me explain. The fourth context is cultural. The Bible reflects its cultural world, not ours. And we've got to be careful not to impose our culture on the world of the Bible. Yesterday at lunch, um, Amanda was asking me, so what's the deal in the Old Testament with multiple wives. 
And I explained to her that, especially when we're dealing with the story of the patriarchs, these are nomadic clans. And you see this even today in the Bedouin culture, where Bedouin men will have up to four wives. Why? Because in a nomadic culture, where you're in a nomadic clan that is traveling from place to place, just trying to find grass and, you know, for your pasturage of your, your flocks, you need to ensure the longevity of the clan through birth. Given also the added fact that many children die in infancy in the ancient world, children, especially sons, sorry ladies, but they become the fighters for the clan, you don't have necessarily armies. Remember even one of the things that Samuel says when he's going to appoint Saul as king is that he's going to set a standing army. Up until that point, Israel doesn't have a standing army. It's the clans. At the same time, as parents get older, guess what their social security is in the ancient world? They're kids. In the Old Testament, you don't have this real developed idea about an afterlife. So how do you live on after you die? Through your progeny. So it's important that you're able to secure enough progeny to add to the numbers of the clan, to be able to... And notice that in the Old Testament, the fundamental foundational block of society is what is called the house of the father, the Beit Av in Hebrew. And that doesn't just mean dad's house. That means the clan, the family unit. Remember what I said about the Bible being more communal than individual. That's why. We read the story of um, the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. Remember, Achan takes from some of the loot in Jericho, which God says all of it's mine. You're to basically put a ban on it. And because of that, not only Achan is killed, but his whole clan is killed as a result of it. That's why. It's a different culture than ours. And this often is easier for people who have maybe traveled a little bit into other cultures and have experienced other cultures and realize certain things don't always translate easily across cultures. Okay? But the same thing is true in the Bible. So we have to educate ourselves about the culture that we're dealing with. I'll give you another one. And it's actually very relevant in light of present day. You know, in our own nation, as we have wrestled historically with our issues of slavery, the Bible's been used on both sides of the conversation. You look at the 19th century, the abolitionists were using the Bible to argue for the abolition of slavery, and those that were pro-slavery were using the Bible to argue for it. And it's true, we find slavery in the Bible. But the question is, is it the same thing as what we 
talk about when we talk about slavery in our world in the United States, in the history of the United States? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not the same. It's a different cultural construct. And the reality was, is because the Roman world did not have, if you were poor in Roman society, you or your family were cursed by the gods, thanks for playing, you know, the sooner you die, get gone with you. And so you actually had people that would sell themselves into slavery to improve from being poor. Because you have no soup kitchens, you have no charitable trusts in the Roman there is no state mechanism to care for the poor in Roman society. At the same time, people could, if you were not a Roman citizen, you could, indent, basically Roman slavery was indentureship. And you sold yourself into slavery because the idea was if you were a good slave for 20 to 25 years, your master would free you, and when he freed you, he... When he, the term was manumitted you, he, if he was a Roman citizen, he could extend his citizenship to you. And that was a way to climb the social ladder. Climbing the civic ladder. In fact, during the reign of Augustus, there are so many freedmen was the term that was used in the Roman society for them. There were so many freedmen that Augustus actually had to implement certain legal procedures in order not to allow the, 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 the pure Roman citizenry to get completely tainted with this influx of freedmen. Now, I'm not sitting here arguing you know, for any form of slavery, but my point is, when we approach it, even in the United States, and even our current discourse, and try and read the Bible through our lens of slavery, which is ethnically motivated, historically, we are misreading the Bible. Misreading the world of the Bible. It's not the same thing. So we have to be sensitive to the cultural context of the world of the Bible. And the fifth and final one is spiritual. This is the one that's the biggest challenge for us. How many of you feel very uplifted when you, and, and feel spiritually enriched when you read the book of Leviticus? Okay, I see none of those hands. But one of the things that we need to realize is biblical spirituality is communicated within the book of Leviticus. But it's a different spiritual outlook than what we have. When we read about the genealogies, that was something that was a part of that cultural and spiritual world. And what happens is because we are approaching the Bible as a spiritual book, we import our spirituality often into the world of the Bible. Well, Jesus prayed, so he, he means prayer the same way when I pray. Same thing. Really, is it? Maybe yes, maybe no. 
you know, we read about Jesus or Paul in the synagogue. Well, I go to church, same thing. They do the same thing. I even close. So one of the things that we have to be sensitive to is that the Bible approaches itself from its spiritual worldview. And it's not something that we should sit in judgment on. It's something that we need to understand. Let me give you a couple quick examples here. Religion was not a dirty word in the Bible. For us today, we often use the term religion in a very negative and pejorative way. Now, I'm not saying that we're wrong when we talk about relationship versus religion. Okay? But we need to understand that by framing it and using the vocabulary that we are, we're being non-biblical. Paul never would have thought in terms of, I'm setting aside religion for relationship. Paul would have said, this is religion. In fact, you, if you were not religious in the Roman world, you were punished. Not only were you ostracized socially, but even at the civic level, you could not do certain things and achieve certain things. Religion is not a dirty word in the, in, the, in the Bible. And so I think the thing that we have to do, and what I would suggest to us, is that with these five contexts, let me remind you, literary, spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual, you get in the habit of, as you read a verse, you pull these pieces apart. You say, well, great, now I've pulled them apart, what do I do with them? Now you go learn. Now you go find out who are the Babylonians? Who was Nebuchadnezzar? Who was Tiberius? Where is the Sea of Galilee? Why is it that when God gives the covenant in Deuteronomy, he says that if you obey, I will send rain in its season, and if you disobey, I'm going to shut up the heavens? Why is that important? Okay. What, is, what went on in synagogues? Because all of those things the Bible assumes our knowledge of, and it's stuff, this is not rocket science. We're not putting anybody on the moon here. Okay? It's simply reading these verses in such a way and pulling these pieces apart so that we can begin to enter into this conversation that the Bible is having with its world. Let me conclude my last couple minutes and then we'll open up for Q&A with this. When the author of Genesis writes the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, He's not approaching it from a modern scientific standpoint. He's not trying to answer the questions that we have. He's writing in a world where there are these creation myths. And he's trying to answer that. So in other words, 
He's not answering when creation happened. He's not even answering how creation happened. He's answering who created and why. In the ancient Near East, creation happened in a struggle between order and chaos. In fact, we find in Genesis chapter 1, it said, where we translate it, the, the earth was without form or void. In Hebrew, you actually have two words here, tohu vavohu, which were the, Middle East, or the ancient Near Eastern monsters of chaos. It's this primordial chaotic soup that through this fight between order and chaos, the world was created. And humanity is always treated as the afterbirth of creation in the ancient Near Eastern myths. But what does Genesis say? No. God ruled over all that. And what's the highlight of his creation? Human beings. The author of Genesis is making a profound statement within this context of his world. And that's where we have to open ourselves up to begin to read things from that world of the Bible that is outside of the Bible because it helps us to understand and begin to hear within this echo chamber and this conversation that's going on. And like I said, it's a lifelong journey. But it's a sound method that helps us enter the world to be able to, world of the Bible, to answer what was said, what was meant by what was said. And once we've understood that, now we can say, what does it mean for us today? Excellent. Wasn't that great? I tell you, I've never had anyone just sit down and say, this is how you study the Bible. You know, it's like we, we just think, okay, I just need to pick up my Bible and start reading it and do my best to figure it out, but to really understand the practical tools of how to study it. Well, we've got some great questions here. We don't think we're going to have time to get through every question, so if we don't get to your question, please, please forgive us. Uh, quickly, Mark, I want to talk about why the rain was so significant to the people of Israel. We talked about that today, and, and it really, it's relevant to our culture and where we're at, but for me, it helped me make sense of so much of the Old Testament, understanding that one concept. All right, so... And this is the spatial context. Mm -hmm. so, so if you're reading the, the, the different five contexts, this falls under the category of the spatial context. Right, because remember what I said, climate is a part of space. So let's, let's talk a little bit about a map of the ancient Near East. So in the South Pole, you have Egypt. Egypt has the Nile. On the North Pole, you have the area of Mesopotamia. I'm taking you back to your junior high geography, right? Mesopotamia is a Greek word that means between the rivers. We're talking about the Tigris and Euphrates, okay? Two major river civilizations. And the land of Israel is right in the middle. To the west, you have the Mediterranean Sea. To the east, you have the deserts. It's the land between. Now, children of Israel come out of Egypt. How does agriculture work in Egypt? 
the Nile floods, floods its banks, it deposits rich alluvial soil into the field. You basically can take your foot and you drag a ditch from the Nile to your fields. You irrigate it. Life is easy. Life is consistent. Now you come into the land of Israel. And remember, when the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness, they are nomadic herdsmen. They're shepherds. But when they come into the land, they begin to settle down and become farmers. Now, think of it like this. Topographically speaking, north to south, the land of Israel looks like a loaf of French bread. Flat on the sides, puffy in the middle. The Israelites live in the hill country that's the ridge line. The only source of fresh water in the country is the Jordan River in the Sea of Galilee, which is below sea level. So they're up here, the fresh water is here. Okay? And even in the Holy Land, water doesn't run uphill. So what are they dependent upon for their crops and their agriculture? The rain of heaven. This is why in Deuteronomy, God says, if you obey me, I will send rain in its season. And that's a very important phrase with this. Now, think about yourself. You're an ancient Israelite farmer. You've plowed your field. You've decided how much of your seed you're going to sow in your field, knowing that the rest of it you're leaving to the side because that's going to be the food for the next year for you and your family. So you're out here in the field, and you're casting your seed. And we actually hear of this in the Psalms. It says that the people that sow with tears, tears why are they crying? Because they're crying out to God. Because if rain doesn't come in its season, it's all for naught. Exactly. Now they're going to have to dip back into the food stores to try and reseed, hoping that the rains will come. Now let me ask you, does that farmer in the field in that moment, crying out to God for rain, does he pray the weak prayers we pray? Probably not. Because this is life and death. But because it's life and death, the Israelites are also going to encounter Canaanites in the land. Well, Canaanite worship is also tied to the agricultural cycle. Who's one of the primary Canaanite deities? Baal. Who is Baal? Baal worship originates in Phoenicia. Baal is the storm god. His symbol is the lightning bolt. Hmm. Well, I'm sitting here, I'm throwing my seed, crying out to God. Maybe if I also throw Baal a bone, if, if God is like asleep on the job, maybe Baal will come through. It's not that the Israelites are being enticed away to, these other, to the worship of these other gods and goddesses because it was a more attractive religion. It was because it is covering the basis of, for their agricultural life. It's, it's about their livelihood. And this is what the prophets are going to confront. This is, going, this is the whole backstory to Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. If God is God, serve him. If he's not, don't. But it's all tied in with the livelihood that is created by the rain cycle of the land. 
And because this land, not only because of its topography, but because remember what's to the east, the desert, which is always trying to encroach. This is why in Hebrew you never have a song that says, rain, rain, go away, come again another day. In fact, to the opposite, you have a song that says, rain, rain, come. (laughs) Rain is a sign of God's blessing in the Bible. Because of this very reason, because it was life and death for them. You know, as you relate that to, uh, to us today, you know, what struck me when he was teaching on this this morning was we do the same thing in our culture. We hedge our bets. Like, we're going to serve God, but we're also going to hedge our bets. And you see it in very subtle ways in Christianity right now uh, with the issues of the LGBT, the issues of abortion. It's like, I'm going to serve God but I'm also going to buy into a worldview over here so that I don't lose business contracts, I don't lose opportunity, I don't want to be viewed as a bigot, I don't want to be made fun of, I don't want to be scrutinized or criticized. And it's the same principle. It's like we're going to serve God, but we're also going to buy into a worldview on different things just to make sure we cover all of our bases and maintain a very, very comfortable life. Uh, Mark, the question of translations has come up a number of times. Uh, People want to know, what's the best translation? Can you explain translations? How do they work? What should we do? What should we read? All right. Um, First of all, there is no best translation. Okay. When you study the Bible, what I would recommend is whatever you want to use for your devotional reading, um, have a Bible for that, you know, a Bible that reads easy for you. And and, and there's all different kinds, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But when you study, you need to use multiple translations. Because you need to understand that translations work on a couple of different principles. Now, let me make a distinction here. I'm talking about translations, not paraphrases. Okay? A paraphrase is like something like the message. Okay? That's a paraphrase. All right? A paraphrase is not a translation. In fact, with a lot of the paraphrases, you have to be very cognizant that the person that's doing the paraphrase often his or her commentary and ideas bleed heavily into what they put on paper versus what's the actual text. So you need to be very careful with that, okay? Um, Paraphrases can be good because sometimes they help to reframe ideas and vocabulary, but I'll, I'll be really transparent here, I have yet to find a paraphrase that at any point significantly adds any value to the reading of the Bible. That's my personal opinion. If they work for you, great. But don't study with them. You need to study with the translation. Now there's two types of translations. There's what tends to be called the more literal and the more dynamic. What do they mean by that? A more literal literal translation is going to be like the New American Standard. And the translation principles with the New American Standard is that they are going to reflect the original language and the original language vocabulary as closely as it can. So the New American Standard is not a good one to read, let's say, publicly, because it reads in a very wooden English. Okay? Okay. 
Those are going to be the more literal translations. They're great for study, but they don't read real well in Bible study or in, in, in a public setting. Then those that are dynamic would be things like you know, the, 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 um, the NIV, um, where they're trying to capture the thought, but to be put it in better English, like what is more readable, communicating English. You also need to be aware that different translations are going to translate at different levels. So for example, the King James, or excuse me, the, the NIV has as a translation principle that they're putting it on about a fifth grade reading level. Again, that's not a problem, but what happens is you don't get the breadth and the nuance of the language that can be there. Something like the New Revised Standard or the English Standard, those are going to translate particularly at about a 12th to 13th grade reading level. Okay, that's, and, and they say that. Those introductions, that's what they're telling you is what are their translation principles and why they're doing it. That's why they have those. Now, understand that every translation has its limitations. Because, think about it, when we translate, when we speak in English, words have a range of meaning. It's called a semantic range of meaning, right? And when you're a translator, and I come to translate this word, I've got a couple of issues. Very rarely does the language I'm translating in have a word that follows that complete semantic range of meaning of the original language. The other thing that can be a challenge is because the if the original language meant it on one spectrum of the word meaning and I choose the other, then we've also got... So understand that there are challenges with translations. That being said, that shouldn't keep us from reading the Bible. And that's why I say you want to use when you study multiple translations. Because then you can see how the different translators are working through this. And you'll see differences in how they're translating things. And those are opportunities to learn and to study. Excellent. Uh, somebody asked the question, what is a good map book? Uh, just to let everyone know, we, when we were in Israel, part of our tour package is Mark gives us his preferred map book. We are actually ordering those for our bookstore, and so hopefully we'll have those in soon, and you'll be able to have one. It's a great map book to read when you're reading your Bible. Uh, so as soon as those are available, they'll be over in the bookstore. Here's a good one, Mark, for our church personally, because we do the one-year Bible every year as a church family. Uh, we read through it. You mentioned, here's the question, you mentioned toward the beginning that we shouldn't read multiple books at the same time. Many one-year Bible plans have us read many books. Uh, for example, our plan is, is Old Testament, New Testament, Psalm, and Proverbs. What do you recommend for a one-year plan? Okay, let me, let me clarify what I meant there. When I, I was talking about when we read a... When you're reading and trying to answer that first question of what was said, you don't want to wonder and venture in that outside of the book in which you're reading it. So in other words, if I'm trying, even if I'm reading the Gospels, right? If I'm studying the Gospel of Mark, 
I'm not going to venture into Matthew, Luke, or John as I'm trying to understand Mark. So I'm not saying don't read multiple books of the Bible at the same time, but when you're studying and trying to answer what was said, I don't want to start drifting because what can happen is then we can say, well, we immediately start the process of interpreting before we've actually read. Mm. And so we can say, maybe I'm reading the words of Jesus. Well, Paul says over here, and Isaiah says over here, and all of a sudden we're bringing all this stuff in, and we haven't really read the book that we're studying. And so that's what I meant by that. I didn't mean don't read, you you can't read multiple books. And then when you look at the five lenses and you highlight something like historical or spatial, um, what, 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 how do we, like, how, where do we go? And you told me about a famous rabbi that you use. Um, where do we go to f- like answer some of those questions? And, and then if there's additional resources besides your famous rabbi. All right. So, um, let me say this. We have at our fingertips today and I mean all of us, not just me, all of us, have at our fingertips today more resources for understanding the world of the Bible than at any time in the history of Christianity. Let me say that again. You have at your fingertips resources to engage and understand the world of the Bible more than any church father, any reformer, any monk copying the scripture in monasteries in the Middle Ages. Any biblical scholar of the 19th century. And, so where do we start? Rabbi Google. (laughs) I'm serious. Google it. Google. Google. (laughs) Rabbi Google. You... That's where you can start. One of the things, though, um, that you will want to do, like I said, is begin to read sources from the contemporary world of the Bible. Because, let me give you an example. We come to the New Testament. And the New Testament doesn't explain things like, who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? What goes on in a synagogue? It assumes that we know that stuff. But writing in the first century was a Jewish man by the name of Josephus. And Josephus was writing to a Roman audience who did not know the land of Israel and did not know Judaism. That's why he's such a profound source for us because he's not assuming that his audience knows. So he explains. So we come across the Pharisees, and Josephus explains to us who are the Pharisees and what they believe. Same thing with the Sadducees. We want to know what the Jerusalem of Jesus looked like. Josephus gives a detailed description. So much so, in fact, he takes you on a 360-degree journey that when the city of Jerusalem was divided from 1948 until 1967, and the 
area of biblical Jerusalem lay in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. There was actually a team led by uh, a scholar from the Hebrew University who built a model of Jerusalem on the eve of its destruction in the year A.D. 70. And they based in this model, it does have mistakes, I will say that, but it's very accurate. And the reason why it was so accurate was because of Josephus. So before they ever put spade in the ground to excavate, they were able to create this very accurate model because of his description of Jerusalem. Now let me explain something. We can't do that for Jerusalem in the Old Testament period from the Bible. Without archaeology, we don't know what Jerusalem in the Old Testament period looks like because the writers of the Scripture assume our knowledge so this is why we get like with Isaiah, that I went out the fish gate with my son Shar Yeshuv to the Fuller's Field by the upper conduit. Awesome, where is this stuff? Right? And so Josephus is an incredible resource. Now I'm not sitting here and saying you start on page one of Josephus and read him through. Okay, that could get a little bit boring. Um, but nevertheless, he's a great resource that begins to give us this background of the world of the New Testament. And so, first thing is, as you come across these things, Google it. And yeah, I know you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but still, it's a starting point. And then you start looking and seeing, well, who are some of the people that are consistently quoted? Okay, let's go look at them. You know, what do they have to say, et cetera? Excellent, excellent. Here's a, here's a very interesting question that I just really felt needed to be asked. Uh, the question is, my son is not circumcised. Should he be? Is this a problem in this day and age? And I think, I think just the... There's a lot there in that question that I think you can speak to. Besides that one instant, but I think there's a deeper, deeper root there. Um, wow. Most questions I've been asked before. Not this one. Um, <laughs> But this goes to the whole, are we supposed to become Jewish? Right. No, it, it, it really... Okay, so let's, let's just talk biblically for a moment about circumcision. Um, circumcision is the covenant that is given between God and Abraham and Abraham's descendants in Genesis chapter 17. And by the time we get to the New Testament, circumcision was one of the marks of being Jewish. Okay, and actually, we find a lot of Roman um, anti-Jewish writings, and usually the things that the Romans and the Greeks criticized the Jews for were: first of all, they accused them of atheism because they only believed in one God. They accused them of having weird dietary practices. They accused them of being too exclusive. And then they also accused them of mutilation of the flesh. 
Now, understand that the Greeks looked at it. If you've ever traveled through any place in Greece or Italy, looked at the Vatican museums and all the statues and everything from the Greco-Roman world, you'll notice that the men are always nude, right? And they're always uncircumcised. And they felt, the Greeks and the Romans felt that if you were that that was the way that you were created, so that was what true beauty was. So circumcision for them was seen as an act of mutilation. Now, as these cultural, external cultural forces began to influence and put pressure on Judaism, for example, one of the central civic institutions was the gymnasium and the bathhouse, okay, in, the, in the Greek and the Roman world. And everything done in the gym was done in the nude. You know, thank goodness times have changed, right? Um, but in that environment, it's very easy to see who was Jewish and who wasn't. So we actually hear of certain Jews who are trying to fit into the Greco-Roman world who are even undergoing surgical procedures to reverse the process of circumcision so they could fit in. And... So understand then that the mark of circumcision in the ancient world became the mark of conversion to Judaism. So whenever we read in the New Testament about circumcision, remember what I said at the outset, don't spiritualize it. A rock is a rock. So we're talking about literally the cutting of the male foreskin. It's not man's attempt to try and earn his salvation. It is the physical act of circumcision. But whenever we read circumcision in the New Testament, we need to understand that the conversation behind there is conversion to Judaism. Which is why Paul says in Galatians 5 that I testify to those of you that would be circumcised, you must keep the entire law. Why? Because they're converting to Judaism. He's saying like, look, if you're going to do it, then you got to do it. Now, coming to the question, I think what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 really kind of answers that. He says, this is the rule that I preach everywhere I go. Remain in the calling with which you were called. If you were circumcised at the time of your call, which understand that means people that were born Jewish and people that converted to Judaism. Remain in the call, remain in your calling, do not seek to cover up the marks of your circumcision, which as I just said, some people were undergoing surgical procedures to do that. There were two surgical procedures that they would actually undergo. He says, if you were uncircumcised, do not seek to be circumcised. Because neither circumcision or uncircumcision is of any value, but what matters is obedience to the commandments of God. And he says, that's the rule that I preach everywhere I go. And notice, he's consistent on this. Because what does he do with Timothy, who is Jewish? He has him circumcised. What does he do with Titus, who's a Greek? He leaves him uncircumcised. And so, on this issue of whether we, as non-Jews, need to become Jewish in order to have rightness with God, the New Testament deals with that. And the answer is no, we don't. I would say something just as an added statement here. 
that the assumption of the New Testament, though, is that a Jewish person who has faith in Jesus will still live their life completely within the realm of Judaism. There was nothing wrong with Judaism. Never forget that belief in the Messiah is a Jewish hope and faith. But the issue was, what do we do with the Gentiles? And the answer was, you don't make them become Jewish. And I think that that holds true 2,000 years later. Today you were talking about how when we as modern Americans and modern Western Christians, we read the Bible, we always look, we read and study it from the, from the view of what's in it for me, how does this benefit me, what do I get out of it, uh, and, and, and like, you know, how, how can I make my marriage better, how can I make this better, but you said that's not how they would have read or studied the Bible. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between having a biblical view of studying the Bible versus a modern Christian view of studying the Bible? I think that, well, I think, I'll say several things. We have made, especially in America, our faith very egocentric. We've made it all about us. God exists to do serve us. God wants us to be happy. Even when we reach out to people and call them to come to faith, it's based on what God can do for them. The view of the Bible does not put us at the center of the universe. The Bible puts God at the center of the universe. He's the king, we're not. You don't like it? That's fine. You don't have to. You're just going to have to deal with him on Judgment Day. Do you want to serve him as king now? Or do you want to face him as the judge on Judgment Day? Pick your poison. And I think what happens, because we tend to, you know, and, and you'll notice that part of the reason why we all have our canons within the canon, right? We all have those things in the Bible that we gravitate to. And a lot of that is driven by our very egocentric sense of our faith. Mm-hmm. You know, I, re- I want to read the Psalms because it speaks to me in my times of whatever. doesn't mean that we shouldn't read the Psalms, but there's a lot more in the Bible than the Psalms. And I think that also because we tend to focus ourselves on what does it mean to me, it also comes to the point where we see ourselves and want to read ourselves into the story of the Bible. And we always want to read ourselves as the hero. And yet the Bible at times is written so that the reader finds themselves not as the hero, but actually as the villain of the story. And I, I think that when we focus so much on what does it mean for me, we also fail to realize not only that God is king, but in the Bible the way I encounter God is through others. 
In fact, you take the story of Elijah, for example, and Elijah's a little weird. But what happens is there's actually, although Elijah's being held up is a kind of a model on the one hand, there's also this very backhanded, don't be like Elijah. Because Elijah's isolationist. He isolates himself. He tries to do all of this in himself. It doesn't mean God doesn't use him, but there is a consistent critique of him because of his isolation. And I think that we sometimes, we think that, okay, I can silo myself, it's me and God, right? I'm going to have my quiet time with God and God's going to tell me, and usually what he tells me is something that's going to make me feel good about myself, something that's going to make me feel good about my, you know, if I'm in a bad time, it's going to make me feel good about my future and all this other kind of stuff. And what happens when we silo ourselves this way and fail to realize that in the Bible, the primary way I encounter God is through others, not in some kind of esoteric isolationism that then it becomes very easy for me to see myself almost as this Christian crusader who can treat people like collateral damage on my way to serving God. And I think if we look at our world around us today, we see that in spades. You know, where well, I'm standing up for God, so I can say whatever I want to say, and I can treat people however I want to treat them. And, and that's completely opposite to the way the Bible looks at it. And so I think that learning, when we, when we put those first two questions first, what it begins to do is it creates an ability for us to read the Bible with fresh eyes and new ears so that maybe God can speak to us and challenge us and provoke us even in ways that we never would see otherwise because we have tended to put ourselves at the center of the conversation. I think the way you said it this morning, which is really good, is, is that third question, what does it mean to me? Almost a better way to say it is that what does it mean for us? Because it's never about me, it's about us. We are a family. We are a community. So when we study the Bible together, it's not what, what does this do for me? What does this do for our community? Because we are a community. We are we're groups, our connect groups, our community, our church family. Um, has the landscape, climate uh, changed in Israel since the time of Abraham, David, Jesus, up until now? Not significantly, no. I mean, you've had some, some shifts. I mean, there were more forests in the land during the time of the Bible. But that, during both the Roman period and then later in the Ottoman period, people were taxed by the number of trees they had on their property. So there was a mass deforestation that took place. Um, so you, you have less forests, um, although 
One of the things that's interesting about the modern state of Israel is there is um, an organization, actually two organizations, one's called uh, the Jewish National Fund, the JNF, you may have heard of it. Um, there, there's another one called Karen Kayemet that they go around Israel planting trees. And Israel's the only country in the world that entered the 21st century with more trees than it entered the 20th century because of these efforts. Part of the problem was early on they were just planting trees without really paying attention to some of the ecological factors of it. And so they created these whole forests of actually trees that are not good for the land and the soil. Now they've entered what are historically indigenous trees in their plantings, but still you would have had more of these forests and some of those types of things. But in terms of climate, in terms of um, you know topography and stuff like that now. As we are limited in our understanding of all that God is and says, we are not all-knowing or omnipotent like He is, are there times we will not have full understanding of all that God is saying in the Word? Sure. Absolutely. Um, like I said, it's a journey. It's a process. The methodology is sound. But it's about us refining that every day of our life. You know, I have more questions today studying the Bible than I did two years ago. Right? It's as I've learned more that I have greater questions on some things. Um, you know, I, I shared this this morning. You know, I wrote, I wrote this book, Windows into the Bible, and there are two chapters in the book which, again, the method was sound, but one of them I completely disagree with myself now. And the other, I would completely rewrite it. And, you know, some people would say, well, I don't know if I'd share that because that may hurt your book sales. It's not really what it's about, though, for me. It's about we're always on this journey of learning. And as we gain more insight, and one of the best pieces of advice that I ever received from a professor of mine was in my undergrad. He said, when you go to write your theology, make sure you write it in pencil. Because it's going to change a few times before you die. And I think one of the problems that we are experiencing in the church today because, and especially in our relationship with our culture, is we think that being really spiritual means having all the answers. We think that in order to be able to really share our faith, we need to have all of the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. But that's not true. And I think one of the healthiest phrases in the human language is the phrase, I don't know, but let's go learn together. And I think that we need to adopt more humility ourselves as we learn and study the Bible, recognizing that there may be things that we come across that go, ooh, 
that kind of rendered what I previously thought wrong. That's okay. God's big enough to keep us driving between the white lines. Right? But absolutely, we're not going to always... Even the fact that because we're separated by time and space and culture, there are some things that after two and 3,000 years, we will never know that the original audience of the Bible had right there. There are certain things, I mean, this is particularly true, for example, when we go to read the letters of Paul. We don't always know all the situations that are creating these letters. And we're never going to know. That's okay. Doesn't mean we stop. Someone asked the question, where is the word derived that God abhors the cult of personality? Something we talked about Sunday. Where is the what? The, the word? word or the scripture or the verse? Um, well, you see it in Jesus. I said Jesus is the one that abhors the cult of personality. And you see it repeatedly in his actions, how he refuses to allow people to follow him based on his personal charisma. He would have been a public relations person's nightmare. Because especially in our world and in our culture where you grab your 15 minutes of fame and you run it into the ground, that was not him. Because while he knew very well who he was, God's anointed, he never allowed that conviction to be the basis for people to identify with him. Even his movement, which he called the kingdom of heaven, means those who are submitted to God's rule and reign through obedience. And that's, that was always for him the basis of it. He, he never makes, and, and he pushes people away in those moments when they try and formulate these kind of cults of personality around him. And I think it's very interesting if we take seriously what Hebrews says that, you know, Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. Temptation only works if it's something that's real, that it actually has a draw and a pull on. When we look at the story of the temptation of Jesus in the Gospels, understand everything that is behind those temptations is connected with him creating a cult of personality. And you know, often, sometimes our greatest strength can also be our greatest weakness. And the person that understands that and understands what their weakness or what their potential temptation is, you find them pushing back against those kinds of things and defining those boundaries very clearly because they know where those pulls are. And I think that you find in the story of the temptation that the temptation and all, all three of the temptations are about him creating a cult of personality. 
I mean, Jesus was a genius. Jesus was an exceptional individual. And you would expect that someone like that would have that desire, but yet constantly he comes back to what is the basis of our relationship to God, and it's our submission to him. It's our obedience to him. It's not being associated with some kind of charismatic anointed figure. We got time for one more, and there's a lot of great questions in here, so forgive if we did not get to your question. Uh, talk a little bit more about how do we get to know the spirituality of a book? As we're studying a book, how do, we, how do we really find that lens, look through that lens, understand that lens? Great question. Again, this is one of those where you have to go to, I think, the, the sources outside of the Bible. And I think the other thing that we have to realize is that language, when we, when we talk about spirituality or religion, you're really talking about a form of culture. Okay, so really you could argue that those last two lenses are kind of collapsed together. And language reflects a culture. You want to learn a culture, learn its language. Okay? Because we communicate language, or language communicates a culture. Mm. And I think one of the things that we have to begin to do is pay very careful attention to the language that's being used. I'll give you an example here. Within the Bible, the idea, we find these terms, and remember, the Bible defines itself in more concrete, not abstract. So we find terms like righteous, righteousness, to be righteous, to make righteous, and justice. Now, in the Hebrew language, they are all tied to the same root word. Okay? When we look at the Bible on this concept, it is a concept that is defined relationally. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible never looks at holiness or righteousness or justice as a concept that exists outside of God. That's a Greek way of thinking of things, that these things exist in kind of this moral ether. And so we get, for example, in Plato's dialogue, the Euthyphro, do the gods love it because it's holy or is it holy because the gods love it? That's not the idea of the Bible. God defines what is just, what is holy, what is true. Okay? Righteousness and everything connected with it is defined relationally by God. And there's three relationships here. How he relates to humanity, how he calls upon us to relate to him, and how we relate to each other. Okay? Now, the breaking of those relational ties is what the Bible calls sin. All right? In other words, God says that here's how you're going to serve me. The fulfillment of that is what the Bible calls being righteous. The breaking of that is sin. God says, 
I've got to deal righteously and justly with you. And you with me. And the breaking of that is sin. And so how do we attune ourselves to this? Is when we start reading and we start going through you know, that very heinous book that we call Leviticus, and we start seeing how these things are articulated, then all of a sudden we start seeing these relational ties. Well, that should open us up to understanding how this concept is going to get fleshed out in the rest of the Bible. That it's going to be seen in this relational way. That it's not an abstract concept that's out here in the ether but it's something that's being defined in the relationship, either by how God relates to humanity, how he calls on us to relate to him, or how we relate to each other as defined by him. And so we begin to pay attention to those kinds of things. We begin to pay attention to the language that's being used. We, let me give you another example. We have in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, as we're reading that, we tend to take that again and make it very singular, very personal. So if I'm really sad, God's going to comfort me. That's absolutely not what he meant. Okay? So we go and we go look in the Bible and find where we see this idea of mourners being comforted. And I'm going to point you to the direction already. It's Isaiah 61. The passage that Jesus reads in the synagogue in Luke 4 to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the favorable year, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. That's the background. So we start paying attention to these kinds of dynamics. And then that helps us to begin to get an idea of what is the spiritual worldview of the Bible. And you say, well, that seems really weird. Right, it does, because that's not the way that we approach the Bible spiritually. I'm not saying that we're doing it wrong. It's not an issue of we're wrong, they're right. It's an issue that if we're going to approach this book and understand what it meant, because what it meant has value, then we have to crawl into its world. One final comment on this. A number of years ago, I was teaching in the academy, and so I used to do the whole go to conferences, present papers, and things like this. And one of my colleagues that was at the university that I was at was presenting a paper talking about the exorcisms and demon possessions in the Gospel of Mark. And um, he made this statement. He said, in the midst of his paper, he said, well, we all know that there's no such thing as demon possessions and so forth. We know that that was just you know, kind of the weirdness of a pre-enlightened world. And afterwards, I, I went to him and I said, Charlie, you know, I think one of the challenges, one of the problems with your paper was you immediately started 
with a bunch of modern assumptions. I said, I'm not sure as a historian we can really read ancient sources well by sitting in judgment on their assumptions. But really the task of a historian, don't you think, is to crawl into their world and begin to look at it through their eyes. Now, I may not agree with them at the end of the day, but if I'm going to understand them, I've got to crawl into their skin as best as I'm able. And that's really what we're doing with reading the Bible. We're simply crawling into a world that is not really familiar with us. But if we use these five different contexts, and if we're sensitive to that, now we begin to find a doorway into the world of the Bible so we can understand its words. Now we begin to be able to transform our confusion into clarity, our frustration into enjoyment, and our discouragement into a lifetime of exploration and a journey with God that is very fun and cool. One last thought just to encourage people, and then we've got to close. We're a few minutes over. Um, should we be scared of getting it wrong if, 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 we, if, we, if we try and go for it? Because I know some people have a fear. It's like, well, what if I try to look through these lenses and I don't get it right? At the end of the day, Jesus sums up the essence of our faith in loving God and loving neighbor. At no point are we graded on a Bible test. Our passion is to love God and love our neighbor. That's, that's, what, that's what we should be about. Our study of the scripture is to help us to better understand that. But it's not about getting it all right. It's about enjoying the journey. It's about discovering God in new and fresh ways because there's so much in there. So the water's fine. There's no sharks in here. Climb on in and have fun with it. I understand it can be daunting and it can be intimidating, but that's also why you want to study it in community too. It's not something that you go off as a lone ranger and do by yourself. It's something you do in community. It's something that you want to spur one another on, share, encourage. But even as we talked about this weekend, it's not about study for the sake of study itself. It's study to do. That's why you have to have that third question. What does it mean for us today? This isn't pure history here. Because ultimately we believe by understanding what the Bible meant, it can transform how we live in our world today. So it's not a... It, 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 we don't need to be afraid of getting it all right. Because like I said, even I disagree with myself in the past. You know, I look at some things that I wrote and I'm like, man, I was dumb. You know, and I still am. 
Like I said, I have more questions than I have answers. That happens to me all the time hanging out with this guy. I just realized <laughs> how many sermons I've blown it over. Would you pray for our church quickly before we close? Sure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for each and every one of us represented here. And um, thank you for your presence. We ask, Lord, that um, as we pursue you and understanding you in your word, that you would pursue us. That you would ignite within us a passion to know you better, to serve you better, and to love those around us more perfectly. As we leave from here, we ask that in all we say and do, we would bring honor and glory to your great name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.